That was a very healthy balance of consolation and encouragement, exhortation for us all, and I certainly appreciate it. I know you did. And I appreciate the initiative that Dave has had, and this arose, I think his message arises from his fellowship with God and his fellowship with God's people, obviously. And so I know your hearts were attuned to his heart. I don't have my contact lens because Jim drove in, and I didn't want to see. So, But I can, is that, Ted, are you back there? I don't need contacts. That's St. Barnabas back there, and I can see the time is 7. 13, there's another clock up here. I don't need those contacts. I'm getting better as I get older. But let's turn to Romans chapter 11. And I want to mention again that, Joanne, how many ladies do you need to fill the Pleroma? How many? 17. We have 17 more open seats on the trip to see Jonah. And I can't recommend it enough. I think this is an opportunity for a very excellent event for the ladies. And... There will be other ladies from other assemblies there also. And I give the, I'll I'll say 4.9 stars out of 5 for Jonah. It was wonderful. So I'm glad you're doing that. That's October 19th, and there's still a sign-up sheet for it. There's also a joint community church picnic. And I'm told this is pretty close, isn't it, Craig? Is this close to us? Memorial Park in New Ken- it's right right down the hill, right? No, that's where you worship. That's where. But uh, no, I, I'm kidding. He, he knows that. It's past the Jehovah. Okay, so that's Sunday, August 20th. And bring your own chairs? Okay. Sounds good. Food will be provided. I'll be there. Now, there's fellowship, food, and fun. And and as I've said several times, and it's now overused, we don't get invited to many things. So take advantage of it. It really is an opportunity for fellowship and for doing what Dave just said, redeeming a grace coupon, loving one another. Extremely important, especially in our times. Father, we thank you for the message we've heard, for the encouragement we've received. We pray that you'll continue to keep us attuned to what the Spirit is saying to this church tonight, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Starting with Romans 10, just to get us up to speed, my translation. And I've changed a couple of places, as you'll notice. But Isaiah comes out boldly, and speaking for Yahweh, says, I was found by those who were not seeking me, I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. That's the Gentiles, the nations. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. And that's the lead-in to Romans 11.1. I ask then, Paul says, God has not rejected his people, using the same word as Isaiah used in the Septuagint of 10 in 1021 here, a quote of Isaiah 65, 2. God has not rejected his people, has he? 
That's a rhetorical question in which the receiver of the question has to answer with a no. To which I also reply, most certainly not. Ernst Cosmans has impossible in his translation. For I myself am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. Paul isn't being patriotic here. He's being demonstrative of God's will to save. God has not rejected his people. Look at me, the most defiant and disobedient of all of them. God has not rejected his people. He comes out very forcefully after answering it already. He says, God has not rejected his people in verse 2, whom he previously chose. Or are you not aware? He seems to also be now in combat with that teacher that's opposing him and a teacher that he opposes. Are you not aware of what the scripture says in the narrative about Elijah? That's 1 Kings 19, if you want to read that. It's always worthwhile. How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have murdered your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I myself alone am left remaining. And they are seeking to kill me too. That's found in 1 Kings 19.10, 19.14. Paul identifies with Elijah's situation because he went through a time where he might have felt quite alone among his countrymen also. But he also is grateful for a remnant. It is not Elijah alone whom these men sought to kill. And Elijah thinks that's a reason for God to condemn Israel because of certain representatives of Israel. It is not Elijah alone whom they sought to kill, providing the reason for God to condemn Israel, but it is ultimately Christ alone whom they did kill, who is the reason for God to rectify and save all of Israel. Christ, the judge, was judged. This is never has never should be in interpreted as an indictment against the Jews as a people. In fact, when the word the Jews is used, it's used of people who are exactly not that. As Jesus said, they say they are Jews, but are not and lie. They are of a synagogue of Satan in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. It's a tragedy when this is interpreted as an anti-Semitic text when It is not. But it's interesting that Elijah pleads with God against Israel, even as Jonah pled with God against Nineveh, the Gentiles. In both cases, God overrode judgment with mercy because, of course, he foresaw the judge would be judged, that the Son of Man to whom all judgment is committed in John 5, 22 and 27 would receive the judgment and that he would overcome through resurrection. Christus victor is the word, Christ the victor. And so ultimately Christ was whom certain people of his own country killed, but Christ himself is the reason for God rectifying and saving all of Israel. This is the Lord's doing. As Psalm 118.23 says, it is marvelous in our eyes. It is marvelous in our enlightened eyes. Salvation is of the Lord. 
because rectification or being set right can never come from the human side. Though it has come from God becoming a human. Say that again, rectification or being set right. Rectification is, the more I look at it, an infinitely better term than the word justification. Justification has all kinds of connotations to it like rationalization. Rectification means to be set right. And that's what God intends to do. He sets right the ungodly. And that's the only persons he sets right. So it's very difficult when people do not admit their ungodliness. This goes incidentally to 1 John 1, 9 in a way that we haven't considered before, but that's building to a message in the future. Rectification can never come from the human side, though it has come from God becoming a human in the person named Jesus. Paul, it seems links the Baal-worshipping, murderous, false prophets of Elijah's day with a certain band of his own countrymen who are of the same ilk or type. Briefly, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but keep oriented to this passage. Paul identifies with Elijah in a way because he's almost using the same format for the murder of the prophets, and the persecution of Paul. Elijah said, they've killed all your prophets, they've overturned your altars, now they seek to kill me. Paul says something similar, but in a different light here. 1 Thessalonians 2.14, again my translation, for you brothers and sisters, he says to the church there in Thessaloniki, as it's called today, have become imitators of God's messianic communities in Judea in that you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Jews. Again, that word, the Jews, is a group of persecutors who happen to be Jewish. And this is in line with John's ironic use in the Gospels and in Revelation of the term the Jews. It is not an indictment against the Jews as a people. But it's in fact an ironic indictment of a certain group of men who claim the lofty title of Judean or Jews and who are ironically acting quite the opposite. He says, and this is a passage that's unfortunately used against Paul, and it shouldn't be. Verse 15, he said, they, speaking in reference to John 19, they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Unlike the false prophets of Baal who only killed God's prophets. And they persecuted us severely. They do not please God and they oppose all mankind. Why does he use that word pasin anthropoi? Because that's the object of God's love. All mankind. They oppose all mankind which is those whom God intends to save. They oppose all mankind. And then Paul says, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. As a result, they are constantly adding to the number of their sins and wrath has arrived on them to the end. 
And that's the end of their Adamic ontology. Wrath is in the service of God's love. We see a lot of wrath today, but I don't see any God's wrath. I just see people mad. I see people angry. And that, in many cases, is the wrath that the Bible's talking about. It's the very wrathfulness of people that's self-destructive. There's only one thing worse than that, and that's the arrogance of wanting to have a legacy, an arrogance of wanting to be important. Some people want to serve God because they are genuinely motivated to serve God. Other people want to serve God because they'll be noticed, because they'll, they'll find themselves important in the eyes of other people. You just saw an example with Dave Wilt of a man who wants to serve God because he's genuinely motivated in his fellowship with the Lord. And he doesn't seek the approval of his generation. And that's a good example of that. Wrath is in the service of God's love. By it, he ends the reign of sin and death. His wrath is directed against the powers of sin and death. Where sin abounds, though, grace much more abounds. Paul is not going to go against that. He says these men are adding to the number of their sins. But in the back of my mind, I have to think where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. These persecutors, in other words, will be the victims, ultimately, of the irresistible invasion of God's grace, which takes the form of wrath against those who hinder the gospel. Jesus died for their sins too. So this is what he calls the wrath that has come on them to the end. The word is end is tell us. The wrath that has come on them to the end is the wrath that came on Christ, the tell us. But these men will experience the destruction of the Adamic ontology. Just as the errant brother in Corinth was to experience, Paul said, the destruction of his flesh. The destruction of his flesh in order that he would be saved with everyone else on the day of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. The destruction of his flesh doesn't mean death. It doesn't mean the sin unto death, as people like to call it. It means the destruction of the Adamic ontology that causes him to continue in a particularly perverse sexual sin that's public and that has brought shame on the church. Those who interpret this arrival of wrath on these persecutors as everlasting punishment in hell, and there's a lot of them out there, and there's a lot of translations and notes and translations that will tell you this. Those who interpret the arrival of this wrath on the persecutors is everlasting punishment in hell. Error. They are in error. Not knowing the scriptures. Not knowing God's justice, which justifies the ungodly or rectifies the ungodly. And not knowing God's omnipotent love. Moreover, by their faulty interpretation, they reveal the great distance that is between them and the crucified Messiah whose death was the judgment of the judge. The closer we are to him, the crucified Christ, the better we see the universal horizon of divine redemption. In fact, 
we get so close to him that we see through his eyes. For it is Christ in us. Christ living in me. We see through the eyes of Christ on the cross. And what we see is a field ripe for harvest. A universal harvest. Romans 11.4 will advance in our exegesis. This is not as detailed as I want to be if I go through Romans verse by verse in the future, which I might. I might break off from Better Call Paul, move into another increment. Any time now. So be ready. But what was the divine response to Elijah's pleading? His plaintive cry. What was the divine response? The word here is krematismas. I just handed it over to Bill Myers as a word study for the next bulletin. Krematismos. That's It looks like this in the Greek. I don't want to do too much of that because I got some things I want to cover. Krema, C-H-R-E-M-A, tismos. It's a divine oracle or a revelation. Krematismos, I guess it would be. Krematismos is a word that means an oracle of God, a divine response, a revelation of something that one could not find out or know by human investigative means. So what was the divine response to him? This is the oracle of God that came to him. I have on reserve for myself seven thousand men now I can't say men and women here because the word is andras not anthropos or anthropos but andras I have on reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bent the knee to Baal Baal was a state sponsored idolatrous worship state sponsored and DOJ enforced Department of Justice enforced under Jezebel's rule. And the majority of that generation were genuflecting to Baal and kissing his image. So the word for bent the knee here is also an interesting word. I'm not going to hit every word, but this is K-A-M-P-T-O-P. Oh, Campto. And it's the same word deployed in Romans 14.11 and Philippians 2.10 for the universal genuflection or bending of the knee at the name of Jesus, which is accompanied by the universal Holy Spirit-inspired, praise-filled acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. And so the bowing of the knee by people to Baal in time will ultimately be subjugated to the bowing of every knee to Jesus Christ in the eschatological moment. Paul uses the word also, campo or campto. Accents on the first syllable there, campto. For his own bowing of the knees, he says, to the Father from whom every family in the heavens and on earth receives its identity. And it's in this posture that the apostle takes 
in prayer and that he says that God would grant you according to the wealth of his glory. There's the father's glory again, the glory of the father to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person that Christ would live in your hearts in a state of shared faithfulness. My translation that you would be firmly rooted and established in love so that you with all the saints may comprehend what is the breadth and width height and depth and to know the going beyond knowledge of the love of Christ in order to be filled to fullness with all the fullness of God. That's Ephesians three sixteen to 19. And I quoted it all because this is my prayer for you. Whenever I pray for you, it's almost always an echo of Ephesians three sixteen to 19. And I think that's a good prayer for all of us to pray for each other. Think then of the obeisance by the majority of the men of Israel to Baal, his name, Baal. But Yahweh had a reserve army of 7,000 men, a graced remnant, a remnant by God's grace and not by human works, as we will soon see. And this had to be revealed to Elijah because he couldn't find a bunch of pious, virtuous men running around Israel. They were, it's not, that's not what a remnant is. They are a remnant according to the election of God's grace. Period, over and out. And the grace is unconditional. If it's works, then grace is no more grace. We'll see that shortly. I'm moving towards some things here by exegesis. And keep in mind that the election of a remnant, in this case, 7,000, in this case, the election of a remnant is not with a view to the rejection of the rest. God is not rejecting his people, Israel. It is not, a remnant is not with a view to the rejection of the rest, but with a view to their ultimate inclusion. This is a prime example of the doctrine of election. The election of a few is with a view to the blessing of all. So Elijah says, they've killed, they've murdered your prophets. They've overturned your altars. So they deserve condemnation. Well, maybe they do. But mercy rejoices against judgment. It's not just that God has 7,000 faithful believers and that he intends to destroy the rest of Israel. That's how it's often seen. It's not that he has 7,000 tucked away, his reserve army, and he's going to condemn the rest of Israel. What God does ultimately is destroy the cult of Baal itself. And the power of Ahab and Jezebel. And through Elijah and 7,000 men. God turns the whole nation of Israel back to himself. 
And of all of this speaks, therefore, to the final eschatological salvation of all of Israel in Romans eleven twenty six. As we'll see later with the principle, and this is very important, and it will be important in my study, in, in Romans eleven fifteen sixteen, this goes along with the principle, if the root is holy, then so are the branches. And he's going to rebuke this elective arrogance on the part of Gentiles who say, well, these branches were broken off, these unbelieving Israelites. These branches were broken off that I would be grafted in. And Paul says, but how do you know? Don't you know God is able to graft in the broken off branches? If the root is holy, so are the branches, even if the branches are broken off. So this... 7,000 remnant is going to introduce the same principle. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. And Paul then stacks another metaphor. If the first fruits are holy or is holy, then so is the whole batch. If we apply this to 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is the first fruits. And if he's holy, then so is the whole harvest, which is all of humankind. If the root is holy, so are the branches. I am the vine, and you are the branches. As he said, the 7,000 sanctified all of Israel. It isn't that the Baal worshipers, even in the majority, defiled all of Israel. It's that the 7,000 minority sanctified all of Israel. It's the principle, if the root is holy, then so are the branches. If the first fruits are holy... So is the whole harvest. And God has made him, Christ, to be for us holiness. Our holiness. Our sanctification. The worship of Baal, or Baal, by a large majority did not defile the whole of Israel. Rather, the presence of 7,000 sanctified Israel. Just as Paul brings up the principle in 1 Corinthians 7.14 where he says the unbelieving husband in a marriage between an unbeliever and a believer, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the Christian husband. Just as the children of a marriage of unbeliever and believer are sanctified by the believing spouse. Without explaining all of that meaning, I'm just showing the correlation to what Paul is saying here. When God said to him something he could never discover on his own, I have reserved for myself 7,000 andras men who have not genuflected to Baal. He wasn't just saying he has 7,000 tucked away. He was saying, this is the pivot upon which I'm going to turn the whole of Israel back to myself. Turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. The turning sometimes turns on a pivot. In our generation, the turning of a nation can turn on a pivot. You know the principle of the pivot, and it wasn't a wrong principle. It was a right principle. So then, the 7,000 form a pivot which turns the whole nation around. So all of this is aiming toward a climactic declaration, a series of them, really. 
all Israel will be saved. But only after all the totality of the nations comes in. And so we have the mathematical formula, Pleroma, the totality of the Gentiles, plus Pas, the whole of Israel, equals the whole human race as the object of God's redemptive work in Christ. Now, just because there is no indication in the scripture of eternal damnation doesn't mean that a whole lot of bad stuff can't happen in this life, and it does. Krematizo, then again, the verb form of this, which is krematizo, verb form, is also used in the scriptures. It's used for being warned in a dream in Matthew 2.12 and in Matthew 2.22. Joseph warned in a dream. First to take Mary as his wife, then to get out of Dodge because people are going to seek to kill his son, his son, his foster son, we might say. It's used to describe this word krematizo, the disclosure to Simeon in the temple that he would not die before he saw Messiah the Lord, the Messiah of the Lord, literally, in Luke 2.26. God intimated to him, krematizo, gave him an oracle. Simeon, you're not going to die until you see the salvation of Israel in an infant, my Messiah. That's a krematizo. It's an intimation. It was used to describe the warning God gave to Moses when he was about to complete the tabernacle in Hebrews 8.5, conferring with Exodus 25.40, in which God said, quote, here's the oracle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Krematizo is employed in Hebrews 11.7, conferring with Genesis 6.13-22, in the case of Noah, who the scripture says was warned about things not yet seen. The noun form then of krematizo is krematismos in Romans 11.4. It speaks specifically of the making known of a divine revelation and signifies the content of that divine disclosure or divine oracle. In the case of Elijah then, God made known to him the existence of a certain number of people who did not love the present evil age and succumbed to the worship of Baal, a state-sponsored Department of Justice-enforced idolatry under Jezebel and King Ahab. Jezebel was a controlling woman in the wrong way of controlling she controlled Ahab, who folded, and she controlled Elijah, who was deadly afraid of her because she had a hit squad against him to chase him down and kill him. This reserve of 7,000 men could not be known to Elijah except by divine disclosure. I can't tell how many Christians in America love the present evil age like Demas. I can't tell because it's not something apparent. Nor can I tell 
the number of Christians in the United States of America, for example, who do not love the present evil age, who hate their life as it's defined by this age and have found their life in Messiah Jesus right square in the middle of this evil age. I don't know the number. God does. He could intimate to me tonight in my sleep or otherwise. He could say, I have reserved for myself and give an exact number of men and women in this country who are forming the kind of remnant by the grace of God that can turn a nation away from the forces that are dividing it, away from the forces that are deliberately attempting to create a civil war so they can build an empire out of the ashes. And people are baited on both sides of the issues. They're baited into hate. They're baited into wrath. It's not the wrath of God. It's the wrath of people that destroys people. The wrath of God destroys what destroys people. The wrath of man destroys man. The wrath of God destroys what destroys people. That's why you don't want to stand between him and a preacher of the gospel of the grace of God. Or any Christian that's bringing the gospel. The 7,000 then is related to the first fruit, which sanctifies the whole batch, and the root, which sanctifies the branches. Ultimately, the root is Christ himself, of course. The whole direction of this peace, and by peace I mean Romans 9 through 11, is toward the salvation of all of Israel, the coming in of the totality of the nations, the rectification of all the human race, the pleroma of the Gentiles, Romans 11:25 plus the pas or entirety of Israel equals the human race in toto. The existence of a remnant is not the indicator of the ultimate salvation of only a few. Please note that. The existence of a remnant is not the indicator of the salvation of only a few. It is rather an indicator of the final salvation of all, in this case, all of Israel and all of humanity, as well as all of creation. This is moving up to the message that I'm going to preach in the near future, I think, about the heart of what God has given to me to say to my generation to my people, to people of my generation. Ultimately, my people are you, those who hear the word of God, those who treasure the word of God. My people aren't the particular race I come from. I don't even know what race I am of. I don't know what my ethnicity is. I haven't spit into a tube and sent it into Ancestry.com yet. I haven't sent it in. I don't know. And quite honestly, I don't really care because my relationship to Jesus Christ is all the genetics I need. Your people aren't the people of the same color epidermis you have. Your people aren't the people of your same community. Your people aren't the same 
ethnicity or nationality. Your people are the people of God connected to Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. It's all that matters for me. There's so much of an elevation of the natural family and almost a repudiation of the family of God today. And the only way that a true family can function in terms of a natural family in the proper way in God's eyes is to operate in the family of God function first. The existence of a remnant, especially as God intimated it to Elijah, is totally antagonistic to his plea that they be judged. The indication of 7,000, that's a living epistle of the indicator of the salvation of all of Israel. We tend to negatively interpret this and say, oh, 7,000 are saved, the rest are going to hell, the rest deserve to go to hell. Look what they've done. They have committed not only murder, but murder of prophets. Well, there was an even far worse murder, the murder of the prophet, the murder of the Messiah, the murder of the only innocent human being, the Son of God. How did God respond to that? I think he responded to the prayer of Jesus, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't know the right from the left. How do they know what they're doing? They don't know who I am. They don't know what they're doing. We've got to save them, Father. They don't even know what they're doing. Now listen carefully to these points. In the course of time and in the flow of history, there is a distinction between the saved and the perishing. In the duration of time and in the flow of history, there is a distinction between the saved and the perishing. Those of us that are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. To those who consider it foolishness, They are the perishing, the perishing. And so, the existence of a remnant is not the indicator of the ultimate salvation of only a few, but of the final salvation of all. Though in the course of time and in the flow of history, there is a distinction between the saved and the perishing. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, in Proverbs 29.18, but in also, we also must be aware that we can at any moment be perishing because we cherish the Adamic ontology. We love the present age, its way of thinking, its disposition, its attitude of self-importance, its elitist elective arrogance if it's in churches. So, the root that sanctifies the branches is the immovable root system that Ephesians 3.17 speaks of, that you might be rooted in love. The root that sanctifies the branches, I'm speaking ahead now in Romans 11.16, is the immovable root system 
also found in Proverbs 12, 3. It's called the root of the righteous, but is more closely to the roots of the rectified ones in Proverbs 12, 3. The ultimate root is Jesus Christ, who is both the root and the offspring of David. The root and Therefore, the root that sanctifies the branches, look it up on your own in Proverbs 12.3 and do a detailed study of it if you want. The root that sanctifies the branches is the immovable root system of the rectified. The root system called literally in Proverbs 12.3 in the Septuagint, the roots of the rectified ones in Proverbs 12.3, ultimately being Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous ones. He died for the ungodly and for the enemies of God and of Christ in Romans 5, 6, and 8. Christ, whom God has made to be rectification and sanctification, righteousness and holiness for us, and us means the whole of the human race. In 2 Corinthians five fourteen, if one died for all, then all died. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. For he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God or the living proof of his deliverance in Christ Jesus. So we don't frustrate the grace of God. We do not receive the grace of God in vain in this day of salvation. Romans 11.5, in the same way then, there is a remnant at the present time, Paul says. In the same way then, he likens his time to Elijah's time. He even likens himself to an Elijah of that time as an Elijah of the present time in another way. We won't hit that yet, maybe in the next exegesis. In the same way, then, there is a remnant at the present time chosen by grace. And that would be the title of my message tonight, Chosen by Grace. Now, if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We could say it this way. Otherwise, grace would no longer be unconditional. It would be conditional because it would be on the basis of deeds, which people do, either people that are ungodly do or people that are saved do. It's not by righteous works that we have done as saved people that were saved either. What then, he says in verse 7, Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. Now listen carefully. Paul will later explain, and I can't do all of Romans 11 tonight or any other night. Paul will later explain that this hardening, they suffered a double whammy. They had a double disease, scatosis, the heart, the darkening of the mind, and sclerosis, the hardening of the heart. The rest were hardened. Who hardened them? That's a good question. Paul will later explain this hardening or sclerosis was in Israel in part, in part, and that it was only temporary. Two things, Israel in part and only temporary, 
until the pagan Pleroma came in. That's what I call us, the Gentiles, if we're Gentiles. I don't know, maybe, maybe if I check out my ancestry.com, I'm a Jew. <laughs> Who cares? I don't care. I have no pride in being a Gentile, but the, the pagan Pleroma, the fullness of the nations, the Gentiles, the ethne, what the old-time fundies used to like to call the heathen, because it's E-T-H-N-E, ethne, pagans. The pagan Pleroma comes in. The totality of the pagans comes in. Those are the people that come at the end of the day when everybody else has been laboring in the fields all day and then all of a sudden in the very last hour just before the sun goes down, a whole group comes in. The Pleroma of the Pagans comes in. This was revealed splendidly in the Jonah play where Jonah demonstrated his anger and anguish at these people coming in and being saved, and God's mercy being extended to them. And look at me, I've labored and read the scriptures in all my life. So Paul will later explain that the hardening in Israel was only in part, and that it was only temporary until the pagan play Roma comes in, in Romans eleven twenty five. That is, comes in where? Comes in to true Israel. Through the always open gates of the New Jerusalem, metaphorically speaking, in Revelation twenty one twenty six, and then all Israel will be saved. All Israel is not saved until the influx of the pagan Pleroma into true Israel. So those that are first chosen in history first are the last to come into the eschatological salvation. Those that are last, the Gentiles come into the eschatological salvation first, and the first will be last, and the last will be first. All of this reveals an irresistible apocalyptic invasion of God's grace, taking the form of two divine missions, the first of which ended with the death by crucifixion and the glorious resurrection of the Son of God. The second divine mission, mission, which is going on in the present time and has swept up a remnant already, when the effects of that death and resurrection are impacting a remnant according to the election of grace, a remnant that is to be the pivot on which the whole of humanity turns to look to the Lord and be saved. On this remnant, Cosman rightly wrote, I think it's page 300, if it's not, it's 299 or 301, in his, I looked at that the other day, I, I ordered the Cosman 1980 series, and when it came, and I re-looked at it again, it said on the back, this book was produced on May 17th, 2017, and I ordered it on May 15th, 2007, so they had to print it just for me. Made me feel special. Jim, I'm special. But they, they do that. Some of the Erdmans, they, they'll do, I think they, didn't you have one like, like Tony, that you ordered one and they sent it to you after they made it or something? So order one. They'll make one for you. But Ernst Kosman said, and I've been reading this along and reading it along. When I tell you about a book, incidentally, it doesn't mean everything in it you can take to the bank. Everything in it is inspired. 
When I say spend a year with Fleming Rutledge's book, which I recommend, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, the Crucifixion, she's not going to say everything in there that I agree with or that you agree with. When you read a book and there's things that, you, that cross your conviction, enter into a dialectic with it. Prove it wrong or prove it right. So don't come back to me and say, you recommended this book and she believes this, this, and this. And I, it, it doesn't matter. I don't believe everything Kosman teaches. He believes in a salvation history mode of, of biblical interpretation. I don't. I believe in the, the third way. But that's another thing. But he said, and I think rightly so, page 300 or thereabouts, he said, there is perceived in the remnant the beginning of an encompassing eschatological event which finally embraces all Israel. He gets the point here. He did his homework, Cosman. Of anything else, he did his homework. There is perceived in the remnant the beginning of an encompassing eschatological event which finally embraces, quote, all Israel, close quote. That's the whole point. When God said to him, I have 7,000, he was saying, I'm going to save all Israel. Otherwise, I wouldn't keep for myself 7,000 as a pivot that would turn the whole nation. I have 7,000. That means I'm saving them. You want to condemn them? I'm saving them. I'm saving them all. I'm saving them all. I'm like the new mother nature come to call. She's getting us all. I hope that song doesn't get put in your mind because then you'll say, a secular song came into my mind because of Reverend Knapp. Well, I don't think I've ever said those words before. Reverend Knapp, holy hell, that's terrible. Now listen, if the remnant is elected by grace and not works, then for grace to be grace, it has to be unconditional. And if grace is grace and it's unconditional, then it has to be universal. Otherwise, God is right back to being that capricious monster that pseudo-Calvinists have made him into being. He picks some to go to hell and some to go to heaven. And there is a double predestination. There is a historical rejection of some and a historical election of some, but that all came together at the cross in history when Jesus Christ in his shameful, ungodly crucifixion experienced the, re- the rejection and in his glorious, wonderful resurrection experienced the election for all humankind. That's probably one of the greatest discoveries of Barth, B-A-R-T-H. If I had 10 years off, I'd read Karl Barth, his 31 volumes. So in closing, if it's by works, then grace is no more unconditional and thus is no longer grace. Such a thing is impossible and unthinkable, though. But because the remnant is elected by unconditional grace then one can anticipate the grace being to all human beings because, listen carefully, it is not on the basis of works even if we make faith a work. It is on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe that, read Ricky's hat tonight. It's on the basis of the finished work 
of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, if the works of the ungodly is out of the picture in election, and I think you might agree that it is, so are the works of the pious outside of the realm of election. They are called, after all, filthy rags in Isaiah 64, 6. So if the works of the ungodly, which is the whole human race, whether they admit it or not, is out of the picture in election, then no one can be saved on the basis of works, no matter how good those works are. Even if they're heroic, even if they involve martyrdom. If I give my body to be burned, says one translation. But have not love? It's nothing. It's nada. And no one, on the other hand, can be finally condemned on the basis of evil works, no matter how evil, even if they involve the murder of the only righteous one. the Son of God. Now, I'm saying that with great audacious boldness because that's something that can be misinterpreted. But let let me just give this in, in our finality here, final moments. This does not take away from the law of sowing and reaping by which a harvest of untold misery in time and in the flow of history for a nation, can be reaped from the flesh. The flesh that offers so much pleasure can offer you so much misery and pain as not to be believed. We sow seeds to the flesh, and that's the power of the impulsive desire of the flesh to elevate itself against God. But there's also a harvest of joy unspeakable and glory not yet seen by men men and women that can be reaped in the life of the coming age, which is already here now and extends beyond death and beyond history. In other words, the sowing and reaping of Galatians 6, 7, and 8. God is not mocked. The harvest of misery ends with death. The harvest unto life or eternal life or the everlasting life keeps on going after death. There are consequences for actions. Listen carefully to the last thing. In fact, there's a penultimate thing and an ultimate thing I'm saying tonight. There are consequences for actions. But the salvific plan of God is ultimately, universally salvific. Or the Messiah's name is not Jesus. You ever hear people say that? That's true, or my name isn't so-and-so. Well, the salvation of God is ultimately universal and salvific, or Messiah's name isn't 
Jesus, Yahweh, who saves. All that needs to be set right will be set right. And that means everything will be all right. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And we pray that this message of hope received twice tonight will be a true encouragement, a true consolation, and a true exhortation to us to live every day in the light of your saving grace, to live every day oriented to this promised final redemption, to live every day in a hope that's contagious and in a joy that surpasses the stimulations offered by this evil age. We thank you for the privilege tonight of always coming back, no matter how many times we oscillate to the left or the right. It always brings us to the center, Christ and him crucified. 